ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, I'm Selena Green and yes, this is the South Australian Country Hour. Well, what's the future looking like for our dairy industry? You're going to get a deeper dive into that in just a moment. And if you farm, why? Why do you do it? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself that question? Or find out why that question is being asked of you? You know, we've got to make some kind of living, right? But we're not in it to make lots of money. And a lot of the farmers that I've spoken to so far have said that. You're definitely not in it to become millionaires. I think what I'm trying to highlight is we're not a homogenous group. Farmers are not one size fits all. We're all quite different. Do you ever stop to ask yourself that question? Let me know if you do. And what's the answer? The talk back number one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Well, first up today, have you noticed sort of new dairy brands popping up in the supermarket? Flip them over, you may see that they've been imported from somewhere like New Zealand. Price-conscious Australians are consuming more imported dairy than ever. That's according to Dairy Australia's quarterly situation and outlook report released this week. And that could mean a price drop for farmers next year as Australia begins to align with global markets, as analyst Eliza Redfern explains. A big focus of this is the Dairy Farm Monitor Report, which has been showing record profitability um, for a lot of dairy farmers over last season. Um, But we're also seeing that there's high farm gate milk prices this season as well. Um, And on the other end of the supply chain, we're also seeing that there's really strong retail revenues as well. So um, all of these factors are are delivering benefits uh, for the industry at the moment. But there's also emerging risks as well that are starting to weigh heavily um, on the outlook too. So whether that's around high production costs or Australia's price competitiveness within dairy markets um, or even the economic constraints that are on consumers at the moment as well. So something that we've seen again and again over the last few years is the shrinking milk pool as we do these reports. Mm. Is, that, is that a pattern again this year despite this high profitability? Well, this season we've actually seen some moderate growth over the first couple months. Um, so over the spring conditions that we've been seeing this season, it's been quite different, particularly from a weather perspective um, compared to what we've seen last season. Um, although it's probably worth mentioning that there's been some really um, some large rainfall events in a few regions over the last week or so. But still with that being said, um, there is still this overarching El Nino event um, that's, that's due to bring those drying conditions across the eastern parts of the country. And at the same time, we've seen that um, cow culling rates have also reduced quite notably as well. So we've seen some moderate growth in, in production volumes, but keeping in mind, um, you know, the, the impact of El Nino and dry conditions through the second half of the season and, and increased demand for things like supplementary feed and, um, and irrigation water as well, um, that is likely to have some impact. But overall, our forecast at the moment for milk production um, remains steady relative to the volumes that, we've, that we produced last season. Now, something that stood out to me in this report uh, are the numbers around imported products. So mm. you've got in 99, 2000, the year that financial year, uh, imported products accounted for 11% of Australia's dairy consumption, whereas last season 27% of dairy consumed was from overseas. So that's quite an increase. What's going on there? 
Yeah, well, Australia is becoming a, a much more prominent dairy importer, and you know the the types of products that Australia is imported from in it, from a dairy perspective has changed a lot over time. I mean, cheese is still a, a really consistently large product in terms of the market share of the volume that we're bringing in. Um, but the reality is, is in today's market, we're we're bringing in a whole a whole variety of different products. Um, and and you know we've seen that those imported volumes increasing, particularly over over the last season coming in and. You know, that, that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products has had a part to play there too. And so, you know, we see that a lot of those imported products tend to be more incorporated within that, you know, that ingredient, that food service space. Um, but we know that across many different food categories that the major retailers have been increasing that offering of imported products over several several years, um, of course. So um, there is that, you know, that increased presence and offering of imported products and, and, and it is putting pressure on, on Australian dairy products as well. And we've seen that both on the global stage and also domestically, of course, within our own market. So, you know, even though we are Australia, we are still impacted by what is happening globally and, and those global factors. That's Dairy Australia analyst Eliza Redfern and she was speaking there to Meg Powell. Well, the live dairy export is still going strong in Australia, according to those in the industry, with an increase in demand in recent years. Australia now exporting around 150,000 dairy cattle annually. Mark Harvey Sutton is Chief Executive of the Australian Live Exporters Council. He says trade continues to be an important part of the dairy industry. It's our third biggest market, cattle market, and that's to China predominantly, although uh, other markets do take dairy cattle as well. And what the industry does, as with other sectors of the live export trade, it provides opportunities, market opportunities for turnoff for producers. So it's another income stream, it's an opportunity to diversify. And we find that for a lot of dairy farmers uh, out of southern Australia, uh, it's a very important part of their industry. How many dairy farmers take part in the live export market? It's difficult to give a number of farms, but uh, on average we send between about 100,000 to 150,000 dairy cattle each year. So that gives you some indication of the scale. And those cattle would be sourced from right across South Australia, Victoria, southern New South Wales and Tasmania. So it's got quite a large breadth and there would be a significant amount of farms involved. And how competitive is the market for, you know, are Australian cattle in demand or are they having to compete in some tough conditions? Oh, a lot of countries actually export. Say if you look at the China market, they source cattle from uh, a range of suppliers, uh, South America, uh, North America uh, and Australia and hopefully New Zealand again soon. But Australian cattle are renowned for their quality. Uh, and the reason that they source cattle is to build their capacity domestically, so to build their dairy herd so they can increase their fresh milk production. Have you seen any drop in export numbers with, you know, not sheep, other areas of, of farmers being a bit spooked? No. Uh, volumes, demand's actually picking up globally across all our livestock sectors. It has been a bit subdued in recent years, not because of demand, but largely because of uh, market dynamics here in Australia, so high prices, uh, limited supply. Uh, but this year we're seeing a, a real uptick in those volumes. And I think what it demonstrates is, it, from a sheep perspective, it's definitely not a declining industry, it's a growing industry. Uh, but across the other sectors, we're always looking for new markets, there is no shortage of global demand for Australian livestock because the countries we export to uh, rely on us for their food security purposes, uh, which is something that 
we're not quite uh, familiar with in Australia. We're, we're very fortunate in terms of our food security, but these countries that we export to, it's a very important responsibility that we have there. As Mark Harvey Sutton, he's Chief Executive of the Australian Live Exporters Council, speaking to Elsie Adamo. It's just gone on 13 minutes past 12. Well, let's look at the livestock markets because they're continuing to enjoy a stunning turnaround as widespread rain fuels some confidence. Prices in most sectors have jumped up substantially in recent weeks, including a 64% rise in the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator and a 76% jump in the Restocker Lamb Indicator. Matt Tinklin is the Elders Livestock Manager for Victoria. Victoria and the Riverina, and he says the markets have turned around sharply as demand has outstripped supply. Certainly some positive weather or favourable weather conditions in the north have had a, a positive impact on probably both sheep and cattle prices. In particular, you know, we've seen the cattle market uh, right across the board from processing processing cattle through to restocker cattle, probably a, an increase over the last month or so of up to um, up to $300 a head. So that's, uh, that's been quite significant. And, and then probably on the back of that, we've seen the trend follow th- through the mutton price, although that has maybe just stabilised and contracted a little bit in the last week or so, but um, from where it might have been a week or 10 days ago. But And then good quality lambs are, are certainly selling very well as, as well. So it's, it's all very positive. I guess we, we were aware that it could possibly happen given the kill space taking place and, and the season. Um, it was just a case of, as the old saying goes, the supply and demand, and I think the demand's probably outweighed the supply at the moment. And those restockers jumping right back in after being pretty absent for, for quite a while? Yeah, absolutely, and that's really on the back of Angus. That's on the back of a bit of confidence out the other end. So, you know, we've been right for the last six or eight, nearly 12 months. It's kill space has been at a premium, and it's been hard to get stock through that cycle, you know, or into feedlots or or whichever process. So we've certainly seen that that top-end change, and that's given the, the restocker on the back of the seasonal conditions a bit of confidence and uh, to step in. And, yeah, I guess everyone's, as we approach 2024, everyone's got a positive outlook. And all all sectors connected, aren't they? Because if you talk lambs, for example, as you said, big, big rises in lamb prices, give, giving people confidence to produce more lambs and and hence look at uh, buying in more ewes? Yeah, correct. Look, right across the board, that breeding element and then from a restocking point of view, people to take on maybe some of those lighter lambs out of the areas that haven't been able to finish them and produce them. And, you know, we're right at that time of year where we start to see harvest take place, so paddock space and room becomes available for people to take them on. We've certainly seen from a dollar ahead point of view, we've certainly see that a lot more attractive. You can get a lot more units compared to maybe what you were able to get 12 or 18 or two years ago. So all those factors sort of combine and, and create just that positivity and people to say, yeah, it is an opportunity and let's make a bit of money over the summer. And at, at the bottom of the market, or two or three months ago, we, we spoke around then, you talked about great opportunities to buy in in cheap livestock and I guess for, for those people who did probably a, a, a bold call but fortune uh, favoring the brave yeah look agriculture's made up of cycles isn't it Angus and uh, and we certainly you know we continually see cycles and those people that have lived and eaten and breathed it and positioned themselves can capitalize on those cycles and that that's really what we've been through and that's and that's what we've seen we've seen it before and we'll see it again no doubt and Matt, something that I've I've heard a lot with with such negativity in in the market that that contributed to driving prices low was that 
it was negativity, not necessarily because it was dry or that we, or that we were in drought, but that lots of people, whether it was uh, the bureau or politicians or the media, uh, talking about it getting dry and, and that uh, fueling negativity that uh, contributed to that pushing down of prices. Yeah, I think so. Look, this, you know, if you, I'm no economist, but if you analyse a whole scenario, you know, we're we're probably still working out where we've landed post COVID rises. And then, yeah, obviously there's been a lot of media conversation around El Nino and, and there's no doubt it's been very, very dry in the north through a lot of New South Wales for the year. So that certainly was the case there. But, you know, that widespread El Nino, and El Nino doesn't necessarily mean drought either. So, yeah, just just articulating and understanding that. But it certainly has had an impact on the market, as as does all perception and sentiment across all different financial markets. But it certainly has had a big impact on our agricultural market in the last 12 months. There's no doubt about that. That was Matt Tinkler there. He's the Livestock Manager with Elders for Victoria and the Riverina, speaking with Angus Furley. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. So if you're a farmer, have you ever stopped and thought about why you farm? Perhaps you've pondered the question, what makes a good farmer? Well, these are some of the questions being asked in a study led by University of Adelaide's Dr Emily Buddle, who farms just outside of Yudunda. She explained the purpose of her project to Eliza Balage. So this project is funded by the Department of Primary Industries and Regions. And I guess it's really stemmed from the fact that I'm a farmer myself. Um, and I want to be making sure that the decisions that are being made in the department, but also more broadly when we're talking about extension program design, policy, all of those sorts of things, that we're actually understanding why it is that farmers actually farm to make sure that all of those things that I just rattled off are actually fit for purpose um, and are actually engaging and useful for farmers. And are you able to tell me a bit about your farming background and why you thought that was such an interesting question to ask others as well? Yeah, so I guess I married a farmer in 2019, so we farm just outside of Udunda. In my professional career, I was actually working in extension and I thought that coming to the farm as well as, you know, being involved in this extension program design, project management, those sorts of things, that a lot of the reasons why farmers were not engaged in the program or were engaged weren't necessarily because they were driven by things like increasing profit, improving productivity, but actually these programs that appeal to their underlying core values and I guess from with my research I was like what are these core values is there any evidence that's been collected particularly in an Australian context to help inform some of these decisions being made around extension program design and policy so that was kind of the catalyst for the project reflecting on my own involvement in our farming business would these extension programs suit say my husband for example why wouldn't he and then yeah really grew from there. And had you noticed that there had been research done on this uh, in other parts of the world? Uh, Yes, to a certain extent. It's quite interesting. There's a lot of literature around what farmers think good farmers are. And so that's sort of some of, that's the literature that we've kind of found is um, people are interested in how farmers define what good farming is. But in terms of farmer motivations, it's been um, quite limited um, and a lot of it's come out of Europe. And of course, I have to ask you now, what have you learnt about what farmers think good farmers are? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. I think, um, yeah, so how people define what a good farmer is really depends on the climate that they work in. And I think that's just not weather climate, but also political climate, 
you know, the subsidies of which they receive, all of those sorts of things play into this space, which is why we're kind of interested in Australian context. Why, what makes an Australian farmer a good farmer? What do farmers think a good farmer looks like? Um, and how can that actually help us to think, okay, if that's what a good farmer is, how can we help them achieve that goal if they want to get to that point? And have you had many respondents to your study so far? Yeah, it's been a bit hit and miss. I realised that wanting to stop up, um, stop for a half hour to have a chat to some random um, is probably not on the high priority list for a lot of farmers. So I think that we've had some uptake, um, but we're certainly keen to talk to more. So what do you hope to use that data for? I think you mentioned at the start, but um, yeah, what do you hope to sort of do with this research? Hoping to show that farmers aren't just farmers because they want to make money. I think that that's a bit of a, you know, we've got to make some kind of living, right? That's, but we're not in it to make lots of money. And a lot of the farmers that I've spoken to so far have said that. You're definitely not in it to become millionaires. I think what I'm trying to highlight is that we're not a homogenous group. Farmers are not one size fits all. We're all quite different. I'm wanting to explore whether there's differences between industries. So what is said as a grains perspective relative to a horticulture perspective, for example. And then hopefully build that up into a nice report, feed it back to the powers that be and hope that we can see some shift in how these extension programs are designed and how ag policy is shaped. That's University of Adelaide Research Fellow Dr Emily Buddle speaking there with reporter Eliza Burlage. If you want to get involved, maybe do it while you're out on the header, email emily.buddle at adelaide.edu.au. It's 22 past 12, but before we head to the Weather Bureau, we need to find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market. For that, John Traeger has your update. Hi, John. Good afternoon. Numbers increased substantially as agents offered 1,083 lightweight and open auction cattle, an increase of 555 head over the previous week. Quality was generally good, with the usual trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers providing good competition. A total of 596 steers, 310 heifers and 141 cows made up the bulk of the offering. Young cattle improved marginally on the previous sale results, with the balance of the offering selling firm to a gain slightly dearer than last week. A good result given the increased numbers on offer. Vila steers sold from 200 to 301 cents, as Vila heifers ranged from 150 to 240 cents. Yearling steers made from 190 to 281 cents, as yearling heifers sold from 160 to 231 cents. Grown steers range from 200 to 251 cents, with grown heifers selling from 200 to 240 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 187 to 229 cents. Light cows sold from 139 to 169. Medium cows ranged from 91 to 220, with heavy cows selling from 121 to 227 cents a kilo. Light bulls sold from 170 to 225 cents, with heavy bulls selling from 189 to 231 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. So let's head to the Weather Bureau now. Mark Analak is our forecaster today. Hello, Mark. Good afternoon, Selena. 
Sounds like we need to strap ourselves in. We've got some interesting weather on its way. Yeah, there's a lot coming up. Um, just running through a list of warnings we have at the moment. Uh, we've got a fire weather warnings for, for several districts and, and total fire bans for Eastern Air Peninsula, Flinders, Mid-North, York Peninsula, Riverland districts. Um, just issued a Downey Mildew advice for the Mount Lofty Ranges and Mid-North forecast districts for the rainfall that's expected uh, at the weekend. Uh, Heatwave warning continues across the north and a severe weather warning has just been issued for parts of the state for damaging winds tomorrow. Today we still have very hot conditions across the north so that heatwave warning continues. Temperatures getting up into the mid-40s again today. Tomorrow... um, we're likely to see very warm conditions continuing across the north, so the heatwave warning continues. But coupled with that, we'll have fresh and gusty northerly winds developing across northern parts, uh, as far south as the northern agricultural area. Um, so gusty winds, hot temperatures, um, unsettled uh, atmosphere, so there is a potential for thunderstorms as well um, across the northern agricultural areas. All of that together uh, leads to a significant fire day and uh, we're likely to see some uh, fire weather warnings and total fire bans out again for tomorrow. Across the south of the state tomorrow, we'll see high cloud increasing and gradually building and by the end of the day, there might be the odd spot or two falling uh, in terms of rainfall falling across the southern parts of the state uh, by the end of the day. Moving into Saturday, that band of cloud will continue to build across agricultural areas and stretching up into the northwest pastoral district. So we'll see um, scattered showers around, uh, increasing to uh, periods of rain at times. Uh, and that rain is probably going to be likely around through, um, I would say, a line Coobapedi. Um, through Wyala down to Lamaru. That's probably the line of highest uh, rainfall totals. Um, at this stage, we're likely to see the rain continue to build into Sunday. And um, as we move into Sunday, we'll see a low-pressure system building about uh, Air Peninsula. Um, and with that, the higher-level rainfall will be around the Air Peninsula area. Speaking of rainfall amounts, um, cumulative rainfall totals between now and midnight Monday, um, very similar to what we talked about yesterday, 2 to 10 millimetres pretty much across the state apart from the far northeast, um, increasing to areas of 10 to 30 millimetres over the agricultural areas, uh, including the West Coast District and the Northwest Pastoral District as well. Falls reaching uh, 30 to 80 millimetres are possible over sort of Air Peninsula, central parts, and maybe even as much as 80 to 120 millimetres about the uh, Air Peninsula as well. So the shift of the, the, the heaviest rainfalls has been moved a little bit further west, and we're now sort of focusing on Air Peninsula being the, the highest totals mostly on Sunday. Um, but with that, uh, it is a very tricky situation with these low pressure systems and we could see that low pressure system drifting around a little bit more. So keep an eye on the on the forecast for, for where that heaviest rain is going to be. At this stage we're looking at uh, Air Peninsula on Sunday. Moving ahead to Monday in the early part of next week, 
that low-pressure system continues to hover around, feeding a band of showers through central parts of the state, maybe even some thunderstorms as well. And then eventually, through the early part of next week, we'll see those showers gradually shift um, further eastwards. So all in all, there's quite a bit going on. Tomorrow is the big day, really, with... Uh, with fire weather concerns with the very hot conditions, strong and gusty winds. We have a severe weather warning already issued for that. And then as we move into the weekend, we'll see some rainfall about parts of the state and uh, we have a downy mildew advice for Mount Lofty Ranges and the Mid-North. All right, as you say, some very interesting weather and we'll keep an eye on all of those warnings for sure, Mark. Thanks for that update. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Mark Analak there from the Weather Bureau. Now for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow, the upper western, a mostly sunny morning. There's a chance of a thunderstorm in the east in the afternoon and evening. Winds will be northerlies, 30 to 45 k's an hour in the morning, increasing to around 35 to 50 k's an hour in the middle of the day. For the lower western district, partly cloudy, slight chance of a shower near the Victorian border, but near zero chance elsewhere. And there is a chance of a thunderstorm as well. Winds will shift to northwesterlies and pick up to around 40 to 60 k's an hour during the morning before turning north to northwesterlies 20 to 30 k's an hour by the late evening. For both districts, overnight temperatures will fall to the mid to high 20s and those daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid 40s. It's just going on half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Well, you're going to learn more about Australia's newest market. That is a market for nature repair, although... It's not being called a market, mind you. Uh, but more on that shortly. And how seriously do you take use-by or best-before dates on food? Do you abide to them by the exact date? Or are you more of a, well, let's see how it smells kind of person? I'll be honest, that's me. Give it a whiff. If it smells all right, it's good to go. That's more of a guide. Well, the food industry hopes to see the end of best-before dates. Our hope is that some of those best before dates will be removed from fresh produce so that people are able to exercise their own common sense about whether whether fresh produce is good to eat or not. It's all about trying to reduce food waste. More on that to come. But would you be happy to see them go or are you someone who uses them? The talkback number is 1300 222 or send me a text on 0467 922 Don't forget you can text or call straight in if you are listening via the ABC Listen app. More on that soon as I said but first here's Matt Coleman. He's got some quick headlines. Hi Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the state opposition says the Premier should order an inquiry into allegations that emergency department admissions are being manipulated to improve data on ambulance ramping. The president of the South Australian Salaried Medical Officers Association, David Pope, has been reported as saying staff were being urged to treat less urgent patients sooner if they arrived in ambulances. The Premier, Peter Malinowskis, has denied any suggestion of political interference. 
The National Portrait Gallery in Canberra will this afternoon unveil a new portrait of South Australian cook Maggie Beer by a two-time Archibald Prize winner. Till Catherine Barton's piece was commissioned by the gallery and depicts the famous foodie surrounded by her favourite fruit and vegetables, Miss Beer says that the portrait has been years in the making. And in cricket, the Adelaide Strikers have named a new captain in the Big Bash League, with Matt Short becoming the club's sixth skipper. Short joined the Strikers in 2018 and became a crucial part of the Adelaide side and was named player of the tournament last season. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Well, we have a new market here in Australia. It's a market for nature repair. Farmers, miners, landholders will be the sellers... But who will be the buyers and how would such a market work here in South Australia? The Nature Repair Bill legislation was passed by the federal government this week after they struck a deal with the Greens. To find out more about it, I'm joined by Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor. He's the director of Adelaide Uni's Centre for Global Food and Resources. Professor, thank you for coming on the Country Hour today. Uh, My pleasure. So it's a, a market essentially for nature repair, this uh, legislation, but well, not really a market. Not We're not naming it a market as such? Uh, yeah, the, the Greens asked for the word market to be taken out of the legislation, but of course it is actually setting up the environment for trading in biodiversity credits and certificates, so it is a market. Right. These things are often quite complicated in nature, but is there a simple explanation as to what this is and how it will work? Yeah, the simplest way to think about it is that um, there are many landscapes in in Australia that have been overcleared in the sense that they have lost some ecological functions or assets that we would value and that if you work to improve what you have or add to what is available through restoration and revegetation um, and a few other actions, then you, you could monetize that. So you could turn that into a credit or a certificate of how much gain you make and somebody will want to buy that. And we need a set of standards for that and then a trading environment to allow those people who want to buy that gain from you and for you to be able to sell your credit efficiently and um, you know, make, make a market work in the way that, you know, in the settings you need for a market to work properly. Okay, so could you give us an example of a, perhaps a, a type of project that, that would fall under this? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you three rural South Australian examples if that's a help. So... The southern emu wren on their peninsula, which is a rare subspecies, there's only about 700 of them, um, lives in, in most of the southern distribution of uh, Air Peninsula. There's probably fewer than 700 of them left. Um, they are an incredible species. They're probably redeemable if we revegetated and managed the landscape a little bit differently. Um, part of the problem is overgrazing from abundant native species like kangaroos. Part of the problem is developments like uh, rocket range and and, uh, housing developments. So if you're a landholder in that area and you take certain actions under the standards that are set by the market to restore that habitat and increase it, then you would have credits that you could sell in a market. And there'll be people who want to buy that because it's a very charismatic species that would be recognised. If you're in the southeast, something very similar, but you might look at silky tea tree, which is sort of the gullies in the lower southeast. Uh, there's a lot of land there in the low-lying area that was a silky tea tree habitat. There's an antichinus, a native animal that lives in those areas that's been fairly hammered by the loss of that habitat. Um, so if you're around Tantanula or down towards the Glenelg River, then restoring some of that in the lower-lying areas um, and actually protecting those watercourses from erosion and other things you would be able to create credits that you could sell. Um, or if you're in the eastern Mount Lofty Ranges, there are systems like 
uh, peppermint box woodlands, which used to dominate the eastern side of the Mount Lofty Ranges, and are now down to about 2% of their distribution. So putting aside some land, restoring it through revegetation to bring back some of that function and allow species that use that, particularly birds and other things, you would be able to demonstrate that you've made a gain in nature that somebody would pay for. Mm. So in this market, the sellers are essentially landholders or farmers. The buyers would be who? So the buyers are, uh, many businesses are now uh, both realising themselves either because of their mission to be sustainable in the way that they produce and and trade their own commodities, but also because finance is realising that the risks of nature collapse in some places. I mean, we have the dual problems of biodiversity decline and climate change, but a lot of big investors, and when I say big, I mean the world's biggest investors, who invest in banks, who invest in businesses, they are realising that a lot of that capital is at risk. It can be at risk from things you're probably familiar with from climate change, like sea level rises, but it can also be at risk from loss of pollination function, from erosion in higher up in catchments, running into estuaries and reducing uh, fish spawning, from loss of coastal protection from mangroves and seagrasses, things like this. So there's that. The other thing is there's more and more evidence that farmers who are taking action to manage the full suite of assets that they have in their properties, including the biodiversity assets, the forests, woodlands uh, and other things, where that's done well, those landholders tend to be more financially robust and resilient to shocks in commodity prices and in higher interest rates, etc., And so finance is interested in giving slightly lower cost loans, for example, to people who they think are more resilient. And as information grows, it's becoming possible to access finance at a lower cost. And that difference is part of saying, well, we bought some biodiversity credits along with our production system, and that's worth it to us. Mm. So there's a range of ways that money is coming into this system. We don't know the full details, but we, what we do know is that uh, this market will not include offsets, but it will include a, a water trigger? That, that's the legislation. The, the water trigger just means that for gas fracking and things, there was a recognition that there wasn't previously a trigger that said if these disturbance activities from, from gas will lead to an impact on water, you didn't have to declare that impact. Now you do. The other part of it is the the offsets, which is when there's development and we're going to lose biodiversity, in simple terms, if we're going to bulldoze a bit of scrub or or forest or woodland or something, then developers have, in most jurisdictions around the country, have been required to make good on what the loss is. So somewhere in the landscape, they have to set aside some land, work on it to improve it or revegetate to extend it. That's a way of Um, trying to get no net loss so that where you do have to lose, you still get a gain. But this legislation has taken that out um, so that the market, and there are markets around the country to trade those offsets, to find landholders are willing to do the things that make the gain to offset the losses from development. Um, This market's going to take that out, but that market probably will still be um, operational but under a different uh, arrangement. You're listening to the South Australian Country Hour. My guest is Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor from the University of Adelaide. We're talking about the new Nature Repair Bill, how it works. Uh, has anything like this been tried here in Australia before? So there aren't uh, good examples of 
uh, high-level, continent-wide uh, or even country-wide trading schemes that have been very well developed with high standards. They, Australia is actually a leader in having used market-like mechanisms like auctions where landholders have been offered a contract to manage to make a gain in biodiversity through certain actions. It might be weed control, feral animal control, fencing, grazing controls, um, where they've been paid and the landholder has been able to express the price that they think they need to be able to achieve the result. And they've done that as a, as a market-like environment where the buyer could select amongst the offers so that there was a downward pressure on prices landholders would seek to try to find what a market would normally do, which is find a suitable arrangement between the buyer and seller where both, both are winners. Um, so we have done plenty of that, but we haven't had a nationally registered, clear set of standards for trading a commodity. And the, the second thing about making the market that this legislation will allow is that like all markets, it will lead to secondary markets. So it'll lead to people buying derivatives of markets and futures and the whole suite of things that farmers in Australia are used to for wheat, but now the biodiversity on their properties would also be creating tradable units in the same way. Linda said that there has been some scepticism or doubt around whether a market or using market forces like this will actually repair some of the damage that has been done to nature. How difficult is it going to be to measure if this sort of thing is a success and does what it intends to do? I imagine that will take some time. Uh, so the market will work by certifying individual projects. At the individual project level, we know how to measure what success is. Um, but it does come at a cost, and that and that has to be included in the cost of creating the credits and trading them. The challenge will be that uh, if there's an imbalance between the buyers and sellers, the market will try and find the cheapest place in the landscape to get the gain. And so there is always a risk of greenwashing, where there was already a forest and people do a tiny little bit of difference and a, and a whole bunch of money flows to that difference. Or even big companies buy up bits of um, forest and then do minimal amounts of work and call it a credit and sell it to other companies uh, as credits without very much environmental change. So the way that that's controlled is that the government, when they set the standards, have to make the standards so that those things uh, are not the dominant influence and that they don't happen uh, in the market. At the end of the day, why is something like this necessary and why is it important that it does make a difference? Uh, One of the main reasons that this is necessary is that the property rights that people hold over their land can mean that just even changing the land use has a reasonably high cost even before you get into the cost of restoration and then the cost of the legal and accounting requirements to have to have two people agree over a contract about what's been produced. So that across the country, the speed at which we need to secure and improve biodiversity is we really need to be on with this now, making real gains by 2030 and by 2050 be pretty confident that we've got uh, landscapes that have about 30% of functioning ecosystems. Today in South Australia, in rural and regional South Australia, we probably are running more around the 10%, although less in some of our regions. And so we, we really want to try to push back up another 10 or 20% um, to create that function. That's going to need an enormous amount of capital to change that land use. Uh, and and to do all the work, and so that capital is coming from pr- the private sector. There's a desire in the private sector to invest in that because it's actually good for those businesses. 
Professor O'Connor, thank you very much for joining us on The Country Hour this afternoon. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, thanks. Associate Professor Patrick O'Connor, Director of Adelaide Uni Centre for Global Food and Resources and a Board Director of the Nature Conservation Society of South Australia talking about the new Nature Repair Bill. It is 16 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You are with Selena Green this afternoon. Uh, just seeing quite a few texts coming in. Uh, one on the topic we were just talking about, the Nature Repair Bill. This one says, My concern, if the land has been cleared but there is a pocket of old, say, forest habitat left, will that be protected? Ask our texter. Lots and lots of thoughts coming through on uh, you, well, your thoughts on use-by dates, but more importantly, best-before dates, whether you think they should go or whether they have some value. I'm going to get to those texts in just a moment, but let's hear a bit more about this because, uh, well, Australia has an aim, and that aim is to halve all food waste by 2030, and the removal of best-before dates is one change the industry is hoping to implement in the hopes of achieving that goal, as Lucy Cooper reports. How big of a problem is food waste in Australia? It's about a 30, just over $36 billion problem every year. So we waste about 7.6 million tonnes of food every year. So that's about, it's like filling the MCG about 10 times. That's Mark Barthel. He's the COO of End Food Waste Australia, an organisation which works with industry from primary producers through to consumers to reduce the amount of food lost or wasted in Australia. Food waste in supermarkets and homes occur due to a number of factors. Product damage, You've got produce that goes past its expiry date, stock rotation issues, short shelf life deliveries. And then there's the classic change in the weather. So the weather forecast might be great. They might buy in a whole load of salad stuff for barbecues. The weather changes and they're left with a whole load of surplus stock that they can't necessarily get rid of. One of the factors mentioned by Mr Barthel was produce that goes past its expiry date. So that's either the use-by date or best-before date. He reckons the removal of best before dates would have a significant impact in reducing food waste. My hope is that some of those best before dates will be removed from fresh produce so that people are able to exercise their own common sense about whether, whether fresh produce is good to eat or not. In Australia, the Food Safety Regulator, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, oversees the framework for best before and use by dates. First introduced in Australia in the 1970s, the dates and respected definitions set the standard for food safety in supermarkets. Here's a quick refresher on what their definitions are. Foods that must be eaten before a certain time for health and safety reasons should be marked with a used-by date. Foods should not be eaten after the used-by date and can't be legally sold after this date because they may pose a health or safety risk. Most foods have a best before date. You can still eat foods for a while after the best before date as they should be safe but may have lost some quality. Foods that have a best before date can be legally sold after that date provided the food is fit for human consumption. In a statement to the ABC, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand said that the regulator had no plans to change the best before or used by date marking requirements in the Food Standards Code. But Mr Barthel hopes this will change. In the UK where I come from, a lot of best before dates have been stripped off of fresh produce and, and a lot more focus has been put into providing advice to consumers around how to store that 
fruit and veg properly. There's been some conversations with the supermarkets to, to go down that European route. Um, and I, I think maybe in the not too distant future, some of them will look at that. They, they're aware of the research that's been done in Europe. So let's turn our minds to overseas, where, as Mark Barthel mentioned, best before dates have been removed. Claire Nella is the Asia-Pacific Executive Director of RAP, a not-for-profit headquartered in the UK. We're really here to create the shift to a circular economy and we focus mainly on products, so the stuff that we use every day um, and the three main areas that we work in are food, plastics and textiles Um, because we thought, why do one really hard thing when you can do three all at the same time? RAP has been working alongside End Food Waste Australia on a project with Food Standards Australia and New Zealand to change the interpretation of the current suite of rules regarding dates. The work that RAP has done in the UK really demonstrated that um, a lot of food was being wasted in people's homes because of date labelling. So that mostly that people didn't really understand what the difference is between a best before date and a use by date. So what RAP in the UK has done, essentially that kind of consumer research, which says people are not really understanding these, how do we address that? So one mechanism is to make your date labelling more consistent. And we absolutely need to do that here in Australia, because It's very inconsistent. You sometimes find products with both dates on. You'll find the same product, one with a use-by, one with a best-before, etc. And so in the UK, there are many products now that don't have a date on at all. So this is where there's no food safety issue, but also we want to encourage people to use their senses to determine whether or not something is going to be good to eat. And a really good example of that is milk. So in most supermarkets in the UK now, you will not find a best before date on milk because you can use your senses to quite easily check whether or not that milk is still good to use. And there's no food safety implication from accidentally taking a mouthful of off milk. As these organisations continue to call for the removal of best before dates in Australia in hopes it will address food waste at one end of the supply chain, There's also discussion at the other end, begging the question, do farmers produce too much food in Australia? Here's Mark Barthel from End Food Waste Australia again. 22% of all food lost or wasted in Australia, which is around 1.7 million tonnes of food, doesn't currently make it past the farm gate. So it's not harvested, it's ploughed back in or it's disposed of on farm in some way. There will always be periods of oversupply or gluts because nature and growing conditions are inherently variable. You can't do anything about that. There are also situations where farmers will grow more produce to ensure that they can achieve the contract volumes and quality required with their customers. But Mark Barthel said also looking to Europe, there is potential solutions for this, something not yet seen on home soil. There are, in other countries, situations where whole crop purchase is used. So a customer will buy the whole of the crop and the grade A, the, the really good stuff, will sit in the you know the supermarket aisle or, or be presented to a restaurant kitchen. The grade B might go into uh, pies, pizzas, things like that. And the grade C could be in soups, sauces, juices, smoothies, that sort of thing. It requires a more sophisticated approach to procurement, but it can generate situations where We've got much more food security and food supply 
and more of the crop being utilised, which will also mean the farmer gets a better payday. That's Mark Bartell. He's the Chief Operating Officer of End Food Waste Australia and he's ending that report from Lucy Cooper. Now you can read more on this story by heading along to abc.net.au forward slash rural. That story is right there on the front page. Uh, as we speak, speaking as, as we speak, uh, just before we went to air today, the Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee released its final report for its inquiry into food security here in Australia. And amongst the recommendations was that the Australian government, in conjunction with the food industry, review the application of best before and use by dates on food and consider the use of QR codes on packaging to provide relevant information to consumers. Uh, we'll take a closer look at that report on the show tomorrow. But as I said, lots of texts coming through on this one and your thoughts on best before and use by dates. And of course they are, well, two different things, but do you use them? Do you adhere to them strictly? Are they a bit more of a guide to you? Uh, this text says, no way I'll be buying food without a use by date on it. A seller will try to pull the wool over your eyes. I mean, lots of food poisoning, says this texter. Sean's in Mangambia. His text says, uh, definitely scratch and sniff is his approach. Just ate a slightly slimy pastrami out of a friend's fridge where I'm checking the pets. Tasted great, says Sean. Oh, Sean, I hope you're okay. Uh, as we all go overboard at Christmas, don't throw it out, but refrigerate immediately, suggests Sean. Uh, one text, this one says, eliminate the best before, but keep the used before for foods like meat and fish. Uh, Steph has texted in and Steph uh, is apparently a food safety auditor who says happy to get rid of best before dates but a packed on date must be used instead to permit trace back Uh, she also says common sense involves uh, assessment and smell sight and touch and this should be promoted in the old sniff test it's a pretty good one I say Uh, this one says used by dates what a load of rot there is a best before on salt Please teach people the skills to assess freshness and quality so people can learn to optimise quality and flavour and reduce landfill and improve food available for human consumption. Uh, This one says reduce food waste. The cost of living can be mitigated by better use of food and reduced food waste. Uh, This one says my partner argues best before dates remain relevant even after opening the container. I argue they're only relevant before the container is opened. Which is it? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe Steph, our food food inspector, can give us an idea on this one. Uh, This one says, this is ridiculous idea. You must have a use-by date on milk. This one's from Francis from Brighton. And one last text that says, how can I buy the freshest milk on the shelf without a best before date? I pay $6 for two litres and it's off two days later. This texter says, no thanks. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. We were ultimately living two lives. The magic was when Chris and Daniel and I played together. That's what made Silverchair so special. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. When I got off the plane, the reception made me fall in love with this country. People didn't see a black man. People saw a human being. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Love seeing all your texts. Thanks for sending those through. You're with Selena Green on this Thursday afternoon. Now, if you spend enough time at the front bar of a country pub, you're going to see plenty of interesting things. Something you don't see every day in the pub is someone shearing a sheep or a horde of speed shearers shearing their way through a whole flock while a roaring crowd watches on. But that's what happened in the front bar of a Mangambia hotel over the weekend. Southeastern hotel venue manager Linda Boylan explained how the inaugural speed shearing event came about. 
contracting business and um, speed tiers are a huge thing in the industry. Um, it's worth a fair bit of money to all the shearers. So we thought that we'd try something different at our hotel and um, put it in the front bar and see how the event turned out. It certainly is different. Uh, how did you go getting sheep into the front bar? Uh, so we had like a truck parked in our uh, car park with a race set up into the front door and then we just had our workers grab one sheep at a time and pull it up onto the stage for the shearer to shear. And once they'd finished shearing, they'd grab the sheep and put it back out in the yard near the door, which is a small distance between the stage and the door. Fantastic. And, of course, obviously these are sheep in very experienced hands. Uh, things, you know, could potentially go wrong, but um, I'm sure it was free of any, uh, you know, escapees on the night. Oh, absolutely. These um, boys shear over 500 sheep a day, some of them, so um, a lot of experience there. They know how that, to handle the sheep and to have them in the right position and make sure that they're all safe. So tell us how a speed shearing event goes. So you have shearers that nominate. There are several different categories, but we only did open, which are the um, more faster shearers, and then intermediate, which are the level below. Um the sheep have been slightly um, trimmed up under, underneath, so it's really only the top area, so we can make sure that there's no damage to the, you know, the underneath pieces. Um, yeah, and they just go up there and get time to see how quick they can get the wool off. And how quick did they go? The fastest on the day was 18.5, but they got disqualified, so you have to make sure that the sheep is shorn neat and tidy. Um, with no wool or cuts or anything left on them. So if you leave any bit of wool on there, you're out. So it's got to be done very professionally. And what did the patrons think? Did you get a bit of, uh, you know, some surprise faces? Yeah, like our regular boys, and because they haven't been to it, we're sort of 100% sure, but um, coming down to the event on the day, they absolutely enjoyed it. Um, my uncle's quite a good regular here and has been for several years, and... He had a great day and he was amazed by how fast the boys could shear the sheep. And is this something that you think you might try again next year as well? Definitely talking about it. I had the owners of the venue here and they thought it was a um, great success. So um, I'm pretty sure they'll be looking forward to me trying it out again next year. And from the videos I've seen on social media, it looked like it was a big hit. That is the Southeastern Hotel venue manager, Linda Boylan, there speaking with Liz Rymel, sharing in the front bar. Apologies for that. A couple more texts that have come through on uh, the issue of use-by dates, best-by dates. This one says, not keen on buying dairy ahead of time. If suddenly I realise it's only got a life of a day or two. Packed on dates are essential, says this texter. And one more, it says they mix best before and use by up. I've bought meat with best before dates, threw it out uh, after as it's too big a risk. Yeah, meat is something you don't want to muck around with. As I said, if you want to hop on abc.net.au forward slash rural, there's more on this story. You can go read it right now. A lot of great stuff on there, uh, including a bloke who was uh, doing the job of cleaning out his late uncle's farm when he found a bit of dynamite left on the front seat of an old ute in the shed. What do you do in that situation? Well, hop on that uh, website, have a read of that story, abc.net.au.
forward slash rural. Thanks so much for your company today. Thanks for all those great texts uh, that came through. I'll catch you tomorrow for more Country Hour. The time is just coming on one o'clock and it's time for the news. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.